welcome to Hugenhoff Podcast, episode 139. Uh, Happy New Year, also. That's now officially 2024, as I'm recording this. Uh, I'm not going to do any special New Year's podcast. I know I've done that in the past, but... I don't want to. I just want to keep reading the edits, so that's what we're going to do. But before we jump into that, I do want to go over New Year, I mean, Station News. If you want to check out my website, feel free to do so. That's hugenhoff.org. That's H-U-G-I-N-H-O-F.org. There you can find the RSS and all my podcasts, um, a thing about the runes, just everything I have to say is out there, so go check it out. Also, Check out Steve's books. You can find them at Stephen Oaks. If you just search that on Amazon, or even better, just go to the website, go to the show notes, and there's a direct link there. I also wrote a book. It's on Amazon Lightbringer. Again, it's in the show notes. Everything's in the show notes. So check those out. Um, And actually, without further ado, let's just go ahead and jump in. We are going to continue reading the Eddas. This is the, um, not the, what do you call it? Not the Poetic Eddas, the... The other Eddas that have the Gelfaginning. Um, it's always funny because they've got the same name, the Poetic Eddas and the Edda. Edda. But this is the Edda with the Gelfaginning because we did the Poetic Edda already. Now, let's see if I can remember where we were. I believe we are here. So I'm just going to start reading, then we're going to refresh our memory of where we are. Um, let's see. From Gnaw's name, a thing is said to tower. Gnatha, when it goes high up, Sol and Bill are reckoned among the Yasinyar. The but their characteristics have been mentioned above. There are still others whose function is to wait in Valhall, serve drinks, and look after the tableware and drinking vessels. Thus are they named in Grimminsol. Rest and Mist I desire should bring me horn, Skergold and Skogold, Hild and Thrud, Hlokrafetr, Gol and Gertrud, Rangrid and Rangrid and Regenleaf, these serve ale to the Einherjar. So I believe we were talking about the Einherjar, um, which I think everybody knows. The the people who fight in Ragnarok, uh, chosen from the people who died in battle, heroically. These, these are called Valkyries. Odin sends them to every battle. They allot death to men and govern victory. Gunn and Rota and the youngest Norn called Skald always ride to choose who shall be slain and to govern the killing. Thor's mother, Jord, and Vali's mother, Rind, are reckoned among the Asinir. Alright, so we're talking about the Asinir again here. Also, I think the whole Valkyrie thing is interesting because you sort of have this idea that the Okay, so the main goal of the gods are to protect humanity, and the main goal of Odin is to protect humanity, especially through making sure we survive Ragnarok and there's something to be safe, that the giants don't win and just completely... Because Einherjar is cyclical. The world that we are on now, Midgard, will be destroyed, but then it'll be reborn. So one of the big things Odin is after is to make sure the world is actually reborn and the whole cycle isn't destroyed, but rather the Earth is reborn. You know, that goes on time and time again, and you can see it in the seasons and everything else, but I'm going down a tangent. So what I'm getting at is 
In order to make that happen, he has to have the Anhariar, which are the bravest, most capable warriors. So when you're talking about who's going to win or lose a war, it's not necessarily the gods coming down and giving victory to the better or stronger or more honorable side. That could be the case, but there's also a conflicting interest where they would kind of want the best people to die so that the Valkyries could take them to Valhalla to fight in Ragnarok. And what the gods actually do and even how much control they have of who dies in battles is is a whole question that we could get into. But I, what I think is interesting is we have created a situation in the mythology where it makes sense for the gods to want the best people to lose so that they could be Einherjar. And I'm not saying that is what the gods do. What I am saying is, I think right off the bat when we when we see that, we see that there is good reason and it's a good thing when the best warriors die because they will protect us in Ragnarok. When we see that all of a sudden, to some extent anyway, who wins the war might doesn't determine right necessarily anymore. You all of a sudden have this idea that just because you win doesn't mean you are best. What if you won because you weren't worth bringing to uh, Valhalla as a nine Harrier? In this weird way, you're sort of saying just because you won the battle does not mean you're the best. Because the normal idea is, well, the gods will favor the most honorable or the most righteous people and they will win the battle. So whoever wins the battle is divinely chosen to lead the people. But we've got this really weird situation where almost the opposite is true, where if you win the battle, you are necessarily not chosen by the gods because you did not go to Valhalla. You did not die honorably in battle. And is that what the gods are doing or not? Again, I don't know, and I don't know if our ancestors knew, but what I think is really interesting is we have a real good argument right here in the lore that just because you win doesn't mean you're right. And you could easily make the counterpoint that those who win in battle are more likely the worst people because if they were really great, the Valkyries, Odin would have made sure that they died in battle so the Valkyries could take them to Valhalla. So there's this weird thing where, and this is not, this is especially in the Viking Age, there is a big emphasis on warfare, but even though there was such an emphasis on warfare and there are so many gods of war, gods of war there's also this this weird thought that if you if you win every single battle that doesn't make you the better person because the better person is the person who died gloriously in battle and was brought to Valhalla now I also think it's important to remember the Viking Age was a very chaotic warist time and before then certainly we still had gods who are very concerned with war. I mean, Odin has always been a god of war, and war has always been at least part of our history. But further back, the trading in the agriculture or agricultural stuff was probably bigger. There is this idea that our ancestors just went around killing people because that's all they could do, and that's not true. They're good at building ships. They're good at trading. They're good at being merchants. They were good at reasonably good at farming. 
they did lots of other things. So most of our texts, like the Eddas, come from the Viking Age when they're very warish. So that kind of flavors it. And and I now this is a tangent. I just want to remind people, hey, we're we're not all about war. War is not the defining nature of our people. It's just the thing that was most common when all of the histories that we have today were written. So do keep that in mind. But there is almost this weird anti-war sentiment in our war gods, which I think is really interesting. Just this, this maybe warning, and, and that's why I like it, because I don't think Mike makes right, and I don't think just because you won the war means you were right. But there is this really cool idea that the winners of the war are the people who are not chosen by the gods instead of the people who are chosen by the gods. So you can't really do that divine right thing in Ossetro. You can't say, oh, well, I won the fight, so I'm right, because there's this whole thing that says, because you won, you are probably wrong. Now, the martyr thing doesn't work very well either, because if you've never proven yourself in battle, then maybe you're not a good warrior either. That's a hard argument to make. I think the people who could make the argument the best are the ones who won a few battles and then were killed because they're like, oh yeah, this is me proving myself in battle and then this is me being chosen. But what I'm getting at is just because you win the battle doesn't mean you're right. And I like that mentality mostly because it's true. Just because you win the battle doesn't mean you're right. But it's like built right into the lore that necessarily the winners of the battle are not the chosen of the gods because the Einherjar are the chosen of the or the chosen of Odin anyway. The Einherjar are the chosen of Odin and if you survive the battle you're not an Einherjar. Um, and another side tangent that's not the only afterlife. You could live in Gladsheims with the elves. You could live somewhere else in Asgard with your ancestors. There's lots of different afterlives and probably nobody really knows what they all are. But the Einherjar in Valhalla is a very honorable afterlife and a really big one that a lot of people were definitely after. Um, so it was a big deal to our ancestors to be an Einherjar. It did mean you were chosen of Odin. And I think I just really think it's cool that you're not the most honorable person. You're not a true chosen of Odin who will fight to um, keep the cycle going if you win every battle that you're in because you can only be a chosen of Odin if you die in battle and are chosen as as, as a nine Harriar to fight in Ragnarok. And I think that's just really cool. You all, you just automatically have this let's be skeptical of war thing built into the lore. Anyway, that's a tangent, um, but I think it's interesting. So I'll move on because we're really talking about the Asenir. There were, there were some, oops, there was someone called Gimir and his wife, Arboda. She was of the race of mountain giants. Gerd is their daughter, the most beautiful of all women. Mm. So this is about Gerd and Frey, which we're probably familiar with. It happened one day that Freyr had gone into Hlidskalfi and was looking over all the world. And when he looked to the north, he saw a certain homestead, a large and beautiful building. And to this building went a woman. And when she lifted her arms and opened the door for herself, light was shed from her arms over both sky and sea. And all the worlds were made bright by her. Okay, so this high seat that Frey is in is Odin's, and that is important. 
and his punishment for his great presumption in having sat in the holy seat was that he went away full of grief. Okay, so he shouldn't have sat in Odin's seat. Frey sat in Odin's seat. Probably shouldn't have done that, so that's kind of what that was alluding to. And when he got home, he said nothing, but neither slept nor drank, nor dared to try to speak with him. Oh, no one dared to try to speak to him. Then Jord sent for Frey's servant Skirner, and bade him to go to Frey, and try to get him to talk, and ask who he was so angry with that he would not speak to anyone. Skirner said he would go, though he was not king and said unpleasant answers were to be expected from him. And when he got to Frey, he asked why Frey was so downcast and would not speak to anyone. Then Frey replied and said he had seen a beautiful woman, and for her sake he was so full of grief that he would not live long if he were not to have her. And now you must go and ask for her hand on my behalf and bring her back here where whether whether her father is willing or not, and I shall re reward you well for it. So Frey has fallen in love with Gerd. He's getting his servant, Skirner, to go get her. Um, now, this probably is a simplification of what actually happened. Just to make a good story, we need a fast timeline. There was He probably saw her from the high seat, but there's probably like more courting than this. But I'll get into that a little bit more later. Um, or at least something related. Then Skirner replied, saying that he would undertake the mission, but Frey must give him his sword. This was such a good sword that it would fight on its own. But Frey did not let the lack of that be an obstacle and gave him the sword. Then Skirner went and asked the woman's hand for him and received the promise from her. And nine nights later, she was to go to the place called Barry and enter into marriage with Frey. But when Skirner told Frey the results of his errand, he said this, Long as a night, long as a second, how can I suffer for three? Often has a month seemed shorter to me than half this wedding eve. This is the reason for Frey so being unarmed when he fought Bele, killing him with a stag's antler. Okay, so here's a problem with lore coming from multiple sources. I thought it was going to go into the whole Frey story, and it didn't, so I'll just quickly recount it here. Basically, Frey sends Skirner to ask for Gerd's hand in marriage, and he offers his sword as, like, dowry, so to Gerd's father. And it's a magic sword that fights for him. And when he first asks Gerd to marry him, she says no. And then Skirner comes up with all these curses, like, oh, you have to marry him or you'll, like, go... I don't, I don't remember what they were. They were actually... Um, really over the top, almost comically over the top curses, like no one will like you and you'll live with goats and like, you know, all this nonsense. And it's just like really over the top stuff. And at first blush, when you read it, you're like, oh gosh, this seems like Frey's kind of a jerk. He's like threatening this person to marry him. And if he doesn't marry him, then they're going to do all of these curses. And they're really over the top curses that he couldn't even enforce. So what the heck? Um, I had a conversation with a good friend of mine a long time ago about this, kind of talking about because Gerd's father is a giant and she's a giant and she wants to marry a god, one of the Aesir, Bonir, but, you know, the Aesir clan living in Asgard now, you can't just say yes to that. So 
all of these like threats are not supposed to be realistic. They're supposed to be a little bit funny and they're supposed to just give Gerd an excuse to marry him. So in the longer courting, we have the idea of what actually happened. Anyway, the way I interpret it, people can interpret it differently. The way I interpret it is there probably was, uh, Frey probably did see her from the high seat and then, you know, started sending messages, whatever those were, notes, letters, whatever, through Skirner, her messenger. And they spent time getting to know each other. And after they had, you know, decided that they wanted to get married, part of part of that was um, all these threats just to keep up appearances. So I think it was probably the case that Gerd wanted to marry Frey and Frey wanted to marry Gerd, but they couldn't just get married because her parents would obviously be against it because they're of you know warring factions you know classic romeo and juliet style so they came up with this plan to be like oh look she has no choice because we're threatening to do all this terrible stuff and then she can kind of say like oh yeah i got no choice so i gotta do it but it wasn't nearly as one-sided i think as as you might read it if you just read it the first time in the lore without thinking about like why there would be these threats and why maybe these two people couldn't get together because when you read the things that Gerd says back and the way she acts she seems very um strong-willed like she wouldn't just be like oh gosh I'm scared of being cursed okay like she doesn't seem like that kind of a person so I feel like the whole threats and all that other stuff was sort of a keeping up appearances thing just to let it happen sort of a plan that Frey and maybe Gerd and maybe Skirner they were definitely all in on it I don't know who came up with it but as a plan they had to make this work even though like the families are of opposite factions because you know that's always going to be a thing especially among powerful people and obviously the gods are powerful you can't just marry whoever you want so if there's a particular person because you know there's like how does this align us politically how does this look to the other people there's always the keeping up appearances part of thing so this was sort of his plan to sidestep that and get around that now what is important it does say here is he did have a magical sword that would fight for him in Ragnarok and he did have to give that up and he got so he fights with a stag's antler instead which on one hand connects him very much to deer and stag so that's kind of a symbol of fry always has been not because of this but this it just really comes in extra strong um but in ragnarok it's hard to say but there's a good chance fry wouldn't have died if he had that sword to fight with him and he does because all he has to defend himself is the stag's antler so i think what's important is there really is a big sacrifice being made for Gerd by giving up that sword. You're really, he, Frey, is really giving up something pretty important, which is going to have consequences. And I think he knows those consequences are there, but he's willing to do it. And again, it does also give us that super strong connection with the stag, which can be really cool if you ever do family history stuff. You like find, um, we found our family crest, uh, a while ago and like it had a stag on it and because of this story I was like oh I wonder if my family was at some point in the past dedicated to Frey 
because there's a stag. And like, you can't know 100%, but also it seems very likely that that was the case. So knowing that connection of Frey to the stag is always good because you'll see that imagery sometimes in life or just in your own personal stuff when you come across family crests and stuff like that. And that can be neat. All right, continuing. This is the reason for Frey so being unarmed when he fought Belly, killing him with a stag's antler. Then spoke in Glary, it is very strange that such a prince as Frey should want to give away his sword when he did not have another one that was as good. This would have been a terrible handicap for him when he fought the one called Belly. I dare swear by my faith that he must have regretted this gift. Then High replied, it did not matter much when he and Belly met. Frey could have killed him with his fist. There will come a day when Frey will find being without the sword a greater disadvantage when muskful sums come and wage war. Then, sp then spoke in Glary, You say that all those men that have fallen in battle since the beginning of the world have now come to Odin and Valhall. What has he got to offer them for food? I should have thought that he must, that there must be a pretty large number of them there, a pretty large number there. Then High replied, It is true what you say. There is a pretty large number there, and many more yet have to arrive, and yet there will seem too few when the wolf comes. But there will never be such a large but there will never be such a large number in Valhall that the meat of the boar called Sehrimir will not be sufficient for them. It is cooked each day and whole again by evening. But this question that you are now asking, it seems to me very likely that there can be few so wise as to be able to give the correct answer to it. The cook is called Andrimnir, and the pot Eldrimnir. Thus it says here, Andrimnir has Serhimir cooked in Eldrimir, best of meats. But there are few who knows, but there are few that know on what the unhairy are feet. Then spoke in Glary, does Odin have the same fare as the Einherjar? Hmm, this one's important. High said, High said, the food that stands, the food that stands on his table, he gives to the wolves of his, called Gary and Frecky. He himself needs no food. Wine is for him both drink and meat. Thus it says here, Gary. Gary and Frecky, the battle-accustomed father of host, feeds, but on wine alone splendidly weaponed Odin ever lives. Two ravens sit on his shoulder and speak into his ear all the news they see or hear. Their name are Hugin and Munin. He sends them out at dawn to fly over all the world and then return at dinner time. As a result, he gets to find out about many events from, from this he gets the name Raven God, as it says here. Hugin and Munin fly each day over the mighty earth. I fear for Hugin, lest he come not back. Yet I am afraid more about Munin. Um. Okay, I'm going to come back to the Hugin and Munin thing as soon as I finish here, just in case it touches on it. Then spoke Inglary, what do the Einherjir have as drink that lasts them as plentifully as the food? Is water drunk? Then said Hi, this is a strange question this is a strange question you are asking. Whether all father would invite kings and earls and other men of rank to his house and would give them water to drink. And I swear by my faith that there comes many a one to Valhall who would think he had paid a high price for his drink of water, if there were no better cheer 
to be got there, when he had previously endured wounds and agony leading to his death. I can tell you a different story about this. There is a, there is a goat called Hydron standing on top of Volfall, Fall Hall, feeding on the foliage from the branches of that tree, whose name is well known. It is called Lerad, and from the goat's udder flows mead, with which it fills a vat each day. This is so big that all the Unharia can drink their fill from it. Then spoke in glary. This, that is a terribly handy goat for them. It must be a jolly good tree that it is feeding on. All right, so going back quickly, going back to Hugin and Moonin and um, a couple things. Uh, Odin, Odin sustains himself on meat alone. I think that's interesting. Why? Uh, maybe just because it connects him so much to mead, because he is a god of mead. Um, I think also because he's a god of magic, and th this whole thing, I've talked about this before, where he throws his eye into the well, he has one eye in the physical world and one eye in the magical world. And I think this is part of that too, part of him only being half here. He, he drinks the mead, but he doesn't eat the meat. He's not fully in the physical, and when I say physical world, I guess I'm using it very um liberally physical world isn't the right word because like he's he's obviously he's an asgard um and all the gods are but they all eat he's somehow different he's like uh, i'm gonna call it the world of ideas so we're gonna imagine that midgard is obviously the physical world asgard is the i'll just call it the real world but then there's another world, the magical world, wherever the well of Mimir connects. Maybe that's the, if, I mean, if you want to be platonic, you could say that's the world of forms, or I think another word is the world of ideas. It's not the world where anything exists in the changeable, movable way that it exists here. It's where, where, where formulas and forms exist. You know, here in this world, I may have a something I call a triangle because it approximates a triangle, but I don't have the true idea of triangle because the idea of triangle only exists in the world of ideas or the idea of a circle only exists in the world of ideas. Um, I might see a circle here, but it's not truly a circle because a circle is perfectly round and perfect doesn't exist in actual reality. And that reality goes from Midgard and Asgard both i think um yeah even in even in asgard and geometric shapes i use because they're kind of easy to understand for example a a triangle there would be triangles in asgard there'd be symbols of the volknot for example which are triangles but they're not triangles where they're perfect like they're approximations of triangles because again a triangle is made out of three straight lines and straight lines don't exist in reality there will be small imperfections there'll be a molecule out of place which is enough to make it not truly a triangle because it's not truly a straight line straight lines are an idea that only exists in the world of ideas so i think that's the world that odin is half in and then the real world is the world that he's the rest of the way in and i think that's that whole 
uh, sacrificing his I because he's putting that in the world of ideas and then sacrificing himself to himself. The whole idea there when he pierces himself with his spear is he is killing part of himself so that it doesn't exist in this world anymore. Now it exists in the world of ideas and he, the other part of him who quote unquote survives, stays here. So I think that he only drinks mead as part of that because he only does half of things that you do in the real world. He, he drinks mead because he is of this world but he doesn't eat the meat because that is a more grounded part of this world. And the other gods do eat. The other gods do actually eat meat and are part of this world in a more full way than Odin is. So I think this whole like um, drinking of the meat sort of hints at his split nature, how he's in both worlds. Um, I don't know. That's something that you would definitely want to think about yourself. And certainly not there's not agreement on that it's not like you have to believe that to be austria like there's there's lots of disagreement on that i'm sure but i think it's something that's interesting and worth thinking about um i am going to wrap up quick but i wanted to say one more thing because this is actually in my opinion really important this line here uh hugan and moonin are as crows we or ravens we've said that hugan is thought and moonin is memory that's like what the words translate to Hugin and Moonin fly each day over the mighty earth. I fear for Hugin lest he come not back, yet I am afraid more about Moonin. So that's saying, besides the fact that Odin's very educated and knowledgeable, because he is a god of knowledge, he fears for thought. He fears that people will, the author, feels that people will, will stop thinking. But he fears more for memory. And I think that... It's a really important sentiment because obviously if we stop thinking and we do things for dumb reasons or we don't think about our actions, that's super problematic and that's obvious. But memory, he fears more for memory. I think forgetting who we are, forgetting our past, forgetting where we came from, forgetting our gods, that is a far larger risk than just not being intelligent anymore and i think that's something that like you kind of see that people forget about where they came from they forget about their history and their past and you know there's the famous saying was it santiana i don't remember which philosopher came up with it but it says a society that forgets about their past has no future or something like that. Or maybe it's a society that forgets about their past is doomed to repeat it. But I think that's true. If we forget about where we came from, if we forget about the mistakes we've made in the past, we will repeat them. And if we forget about our past, we forget where we came from. We kind of forget who we are. So I think that's a really important um, point, a really important thing to remember that it's, when we're talking about Hugin and Moonin, it's not just Odin is a god of knowledge and knowledge is important because, you know, you fear for Hugin, but also that memory is just as important or more important, really. He fears for Munin more. It's really important to remember where you came from and uh, just the, the past of society, your family, yourself, all of that. The memory of where we came from is super important. The memory of 
the gods and the stories that created us all of those things are super important so i think i'm going to go ahead and wrap it up there because i've hit the time that i usually hit and i think that's a good place to stop um i will just say everybody definitely read this book and i think that things thinking about thought and memory just that that is such a great line. I think that's the one I'd suggest everybody think about. I'm going to read it one more time. Hugin and Moonen fly each day over the mighty earth. I fear for Hugin lest he come not back. Yet I am afraid more about Moonen. That's just a great line. You fear for, for thought that people aren't intelligent in the future. But it's even more terrifying that we forget who we are. So I will leave you there. Thank you everyone for watching, uh, listening rather. I hope everyone has a happy new year and I will see you next month. So thanks so much. Fra hell.